This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled Gnosis and the World, recorded May 25th, 2003, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this morning, I am going to try to talk about, I won't say answer, but talk about a question left in the question box by Sean, who's here who didn't say on this question that he didn't want to be mentioned, that he wanted to remain anonymous, so the default position is, I mention you. And here is the question. What is the significance of gnosis for the world? And I should probably just mention here, for those of you maybe who are here for the first time, gnosis is a Greek word spelled G-N-O-S-I-S. You don't pronounce the G, gnosis. And it is sort of the Greek equivalent of enlightenment or realization or whatever term that another tradition has. This was the term of the ancient mystics of Greece for realization, for enlightenment. So anyway, what is the significance of gnosis or enlightenment for the world? And then he goes on. I am particularly curious about what might be meant by phrases such as the divinization of matter that are often used in relation to such figures as Sri Aurobindo and Chardin, Tilliard de Chardin. I am just beginning to explore the thought of these men and those associated with them, but I was wondering if you have anything to say on this subject. Thanks, Sean. Uh, since I'm from New York, I always have something to say on any subject. <laughs> I can't guarantee that it'll be right. We hope it'll be helpful. So, what is the significance of Gnosis for the world? And I think we have to talk about this from two different perspectives that are, in the end, somewhat paradoxical, as we will see. Uh, but if we don't split them up in the beginning, we won't get very far. We'll just be uh, speaking in paradox after paradox after paradox. So let's try at first to make sense of it, and then we can undo that at the end. We can throw all that out the window. And if we divide this into two perspectives, we could think of it. One is from the modern historical perspective, and the other is from the perspective of Gnosis itself, from a Gnostic's perspective. So let's begin with the modern historical perspective. And what I mean by this is something fairly precise. What I'm calling the modern historical perspective is that perspective that seeks to understand the past according to certain rules of evidence. Rules that are drawn from some of the sciences and so forth, like biology, geology, archaeology, and that also rely on textual analysis and things like that. So th this is how we uh, moderns, uh, as a society, whether you do it or not, but as a society, how we reconstruct the past based on these sorts of rules of evidence. So if somebody comes and said, I remember uh, you know, my past life in Egypt, and I can tell you what the Pharaoh was doing, we usually do not credit that as being uh, acceptable. But if we find some record in a uh, Egyptian tomb about a life of a pharaoh and the banquet he had and whatever, then we do accept that. So that's modern rules of evidence. Every society, in fact, has some history, uh, even if it's just a oral myth, myths about the beginning of the universe, the creation, myths about what the ancestors did, the gods did, and so forth. Sometimes they include uh, projections, what's the end of the world going to be like, and so forth. So we are not the only ones who ever had a history, but when I talk about modern history, I'm talking about history that's, uh, that's reconstructed from these modern rules of evidence. So let's begin then by asking, what effect has Gnosis had on the world so far? And I'm talking about the world of uh, human beings, at least, as far as we can determine. Well, we could begin by making an argument that Gnosis is the source of all religion, even exoteric religions, even religions that have lost track of their Gnostic origins from this point of view. If we traced it back, we would find Gnosis was at the root. 
Now, I'm not going to make that argument completely and fully here this morning. You'd have to make an argument, and it'd be a historical argument. A modern historian could go back and make that argument. Uh, we have to fill in some of the gaps with some speculation, but modern histories uh, have to do that anyway, especially the farther back you go. But we can look at some of the most obvious examples. Buddhism obviously comes from the Buddha's enlightenment. We know that historically. There's no question about it. And Gnosis then is really the goal of Buddhism. Enlightenment is the goal of Buddhism. So of all the religions, I think that is the most clear in Buddhism. Uh, it's also almost certainly true of Taoism and Hinduism. Taoism we can trace back to uh, Lao Tzu, who's the perhaps legendary founder of Taoism, but he was obviously a Gnostic from his little book that he wrote, the Tao Te Ching. And the Hindu tradition has been heavily influenced by the ancient Rishis, uh, whose work forms the Vedanta, the end of the Vedas. And so insofar as the end of the Vedas, the Vedanta is uh, a primary source for Hindu spirituality, that's mystical. Both Taoism and Hinduism uh, had taken over more ancient forms. The uh, Hindus had taken over forms that were brought from the Aryan invasions and also indigenous forms from civilizations that predate what we now know as Hindu civilization. Uh, and there was Taoism prior to Lao Tzu, and it probably came from some sort of shamanic root. So uh, there are forms there that did not begin right with the Rishis or right with Lao Tzu. But uh, we can certainly say the Rishis and Lao Tzu were mystics, and they certainly uh, stamped these traditions. Uh, Christianity and uh, Islam, both we can make an argument that they came from uh, a Gnostic uh, realization. Uh, we can make a very good argument that Jesus was a Gnostic. Uh, and in fact, that's, in, for my money, the only way you can make sense of Jesus' teachings. And if you apply modern historical analysis to what's in the Gospels and then what was dug up in the Nag Hammadi Library and things like that, uh, we can eliminate a whole slew of teachings about the second coming and so forth and so on, the messianic ones. And what we're left with are miracle stories and basically a Gnostic wisdom. Uh, in Islam, it's interesting because Islam uh, divides two functions, the function of the prophet and the Gnostic, and they are not necessarily synonymous. So one could be a Gnostic and not necessarily a prophet. A prophet is one who brings a revelation, and specifically like the law, like Moses and Muhammad brought the law. But that is not necessarily uh, what a Gnostic does. In fact, if you are a Sufi, a Gnostic of Islam, you consider that Muhammad was the seal of the prophets. And one interpretation of that is that there will be no more prophets. There'll be no more law bringers. That's not the only interpretation, by the way, but let's not get off on that. And the other thing is that to be a prophet, this is something that happens by grace. You don't work to become a prophet. God picks you out and you're the prophet and that's it. Here's the revelation and you deliver it. But at least from the point of view of the Sufis, Muhammad was both a Gnostic and a prophet. And there's a whole account of his night journey to uh, the throne of Allah, which they take as being a symbolic account of his awakening, his enlightenment. So... Uh, we can say that if that's true, then Islam partly flowed out of this gnosis anyway. Judaism's harder to say about. Uh, do we trace it back to Moses? Uh, you know, Moses went up in the mountain and he met with God and so forth. And one way to make sense of that is that these are ways of talking about a, an enlightenment, a gnosis, a realization of the divine, a face-to-face, -face, quote, encounter with the divine face-to-face -face here I'm using metaphorically because actually it's not face-to-face. -face. But if you were going to describe this in vivid terms, that's about as close as you could get. Uh, so we don't know. But we certainly do know that within Judaism, there's been a very strong mystical current of the Kabbalists and the uh, Hasids and so forth. And they have certainly looked back at Moses and thought that he was agnostic and that their religion flows from that. So from the mystic's point of view anyway, that's true. We even have some evidence that the original shamanic uh, spirituality that predates all these uh, later religions, that is uh, prehistorical, if you like, that was before there was even writing, arose from uh, Gnostic awakenings. And I just want to say one thing. Not all shamans are Gnostics by any means. Uh, so if someone's a shaman, they're not necessarily uh, a Gnostic. 
But we do find accounts given to Westerners by shamans who had very little contact with uh, European culture. And if we assume that things had not changed that much, we can assume that this probably was going on before the Europeans arrived and before the Europeans became Europeans while they were still, you know, running around in the forests of Europe and so forth. Or maybe hadn't even left the Caucasus yet. And here's a good example of what I'm talking about. This is an account by an Eskimo shaman named Ayua, uh, given to a Norwegian explorer. And here's what he says. Then I sought solitude, and here I soon became very melancholy. I would sometimes fall to weeping and felt unhappy without knowing why. Now, notice, I'm going to interrupt here to point out that these are classic stages of awakening. This is like the dark night of the soul, or what I call kenosis. Then, for no reason, I felt a great inexplicable joy, a joy so powerful that I could not restrain it, but had to break into song, a mighty song with only room for one word, joy, joy, joy. So, there's this sudden, sudden, very important, sudden, inexplicable explosion of bliss. And he doesn't know where it comes from. It's not something that comes logically out of uh, some prior step. It just suddenly dawns. Then, very important, he goes on to say, and then in the midst of such a mysterious and overwhelming delight, I became a shaman not knowing myself how it came about. But I was a shaman. I could see and hear in a totally different way. I had gained my kamanek, my enlightenment, the shaman light of brain and body. Now, this is very important. He can distinguish his enlightenment from the bliss. And this is a perennial problem sometimes, Uh, that people have. They have a Gnostic awakening and it uh, unleashes all this bliss and they mistake the bliss for the Gnosis and they become attached to the bliss and then the bliss fades away and they seem to have lost their Gnosis. Gnosis is not bliss. It almost always is accompanied by an explosion of bliss, but it is not. It's something different. And he's recognized this, his shaman light. And then he goes on to say, And this in such a manner that it was not only I who could see through the darkness of life, but the same light also shone out from me, imperceptible to human beings, but visible to all the spirits of the earth and sky and sea. This light that permeates everything, that cuts across the subject-object boundaries, this whole idea of the world being alive with spirits, really that there is no such thing as spirit and matter. What we have here is nothing but spirit and the light of spirit. And then there are other reasons to believe shamanism stemmed out of Gnostic awakenings. The shamanic initiation rituals all have to do with a spiritual death and resurrection and things like that, which are classic symbols of the process that you go through for most people in a Gnostic awakening. So then, if all religion comes from Gnosis, uh, what is the place of religion in human life? Human beings are called technically homo sapiens, the the beings that know. And it's interesting, in the last century, in the 20th century, there were all sorts of attempts to find out what was unique about human beings. Uh, First of all, the fact that we know is perhaps not so unique. Uh, Lots of beings know in their own ways. Any of you who own any pets or whatever know that your pets know an awful lot in ways sometimes better than we do. Uh, They tried to define man as a tool maker. This was a big deal at the beginning of the 20th century. Only of all the beings, only man made tools. Well, chimpanzees make tools. Other animals make tools. Then uh, around the middle of 20th century and then the 50s, uh, there was this uh, socio-biological theory that Man was the war maker, the warmonger, see, that only human beings like murdered and killed each other. Actually, that's not quite true. They find out chimpanzees do that too. They get together in gangs and they go out and murder other chimpanzees and stuff. And uh, then human beings use language, the only beings that use language. Well, whales have some sort of language communication. There are other sorts of linguistic things. But the one thing that does seem to be true is that human beings are religious. 
maybe not every human being, but all human societies have been religious. Maybe we should redefine the human being as homo religio or something like that. <laughs> so there's something in us. And by the way, I'm not making some absolute distinction here. Maybe this is also in nascent form in animals or whatever. But there's something in us that longs for transcendence. Or perhaps we should say an intuition. An intuition of something more to all this than meets the eye, so to speak. So all human societies have been religious. They've all based themselves on spiritual or religious paradigms. And if these spiritual and religious paradigms came from Gnostics, then we can say that, well, Gnosis has had an incalculable effect on human history so far. It's shaped all our societies. It's shaped the great civilizations. Human beings are unthinkable without a religious background. We couldn't possibly understand where we are today, even if you yourself aren't religious, or even if some societies, like major parts of our society and European society, that have become secular. But our whole heritage has come out of religion. And so if religion came out of Gnosis, Gnosis is the origin, the wellspring of all of that. Then we can ask the question, okay, what's Gnosis' significance going to be for the future? as far as we can tell. And again, uh, looking from a modern historical perspective, uh, I think we can say that history does seem to have a trajectory that we can identify. At least according to the most recent theories, human beings arose in Africa, and we spread out from Africa, and probably in clans and tribes and things like that. We spread out all over the Eurasian continent, crossed over to the Americas, uh, into Australia, and so forth. And then a funny thing happened. There was a sort of a reversal. <clears throat> Instead of dispersion, we began to come together. First, tribes and clans came together in more feudal societies, feudal hierarchies. And then they came together in city-states. And then the city-states formed empires. And empires spread civilizations. And so we see this tendency towards unification. It's not a straight line, obviously. It's more often, you know, uh, two steps forward, one step back, or sometimes it feels like three steps back. But we do seem to be moving towards a greater and greater unification, towards perhaps a global civilization. And in order to have a global civilization, we are going to need a global paradigm. One of the problems that we face uh, Western culture faces particularly today, but as a world, is that we do not have an adequate cosmological paradigm, a worldview that embraces everything we know. We used to have a worldview for science, and that was materialism, but the advent of quantum mechanics has blown that out of the water. So we can do our science very well, but we don't really know why it works. I mean, we can't explain it in a larger context. It's quite a mystery. Uh, Feynman, uh, Richard Feynman, a great American scientist of the 20th century, he used to give uh, lectures on quantum mechanics to lay people at the new school or something in New York. And he would start off by saying, uh, I'm going to give you a, a series of lectures here in quantum mechanics, but you're not going to understand it when I'm finished. And he said, the reason you're not going to understand it, he says, because I give the same, more advanced, but basically the same series of lectures to my uh, graduate students at the university, and they don't understand it. And the reason they don't understand it is because I don't understand it. <laughs> and it's true. So we need a new cosmological paradigm, new worldview, and one of the things that has to do is it has to account for the fantastic success of science. And this is one of the reasons that the old paradigms don't work very well anymore. As beautiful as they may be, the paradigms of Buddhism, of Hinduism, of Islam, Christianity, Judaism, stuff, they can't account for that. They don't account for that, let's put it that way. People try to make them account for it, but this is something new on the stage. But also, a cosmological paradigm is going to have to account for this thirst for transcendence. You know, uh, it was the great dream of the uh, rationalists of the European Enlightenment. And this is the historical Enlightenment, nothing to do with spiritual Enlightenment now, but, you know, the age of reason and the uh, 18th century, 19th century. 
they saw religion as some sort of superstition. Eventually, religion would die out and it'd be replaced by reason and so forth. Well, it hasn't happened. Not only hasn't happened, we see religions come back in spades in forms that uh, we don't necessarily like, actually, in the world today. It's not going to be stamped out. So we need a new paradigm, and it has to account for science, but it also has to be a spiritual paradigm. And I think that uh, if the past is any indication, Gnosis is going to play a very significant part in constructing that new paradigm. Now then, there have been, both in the past and more recently, more ambitious, more speculative, if you like, views of history that history itself may be like a great spiritual path. Probably the Jews were the first ones to start to see history this way, but the whole idea of the Messiah coming and bringing an end to history as we know it, at least, establishing some sort of uh, utopian uh, spiritual society and whatnot. The Christians picked up the same theme with the idea of the second coming. Christ was going to come back at the end of time. And again, history has a a movement. It's going someplace, and it'll have an end. And at the end, things will get sorted out. Uh, in Islam, this world is going to be destroyed. There's going to be a reckoning, and you know it'll have served its purpose, so to speak. Uh, in the Eastern traditions, time was seen to be more cyclic. Usually, they would say time has no beginning and no end in, in that normal sense of the word. But still, in uh, at least in Mahayana Buddhism, there was some sense of history having a purpose. If you took the bodhisattva vow, which is not to enter nirvana yourself until all beings were enlightened and able to enter nirvana, then the idea was that the world as we knew it would come to an end when samsara had been empty of all beings. See, they go one by one, they go off to nirvana, and finally there are no more beings left in samsara. So they had some idea of this as well. The mystics have had an ambiguous way of putting this. Uh, they've always believed in basically in the Western mystics, in this doctrine of all things are returning to God. Uh, Origen, who was an early Christian mystic, believed everything came from God, was going to go back to God, including the devil, by the way, that everything would be going back to God. Uh, this is in the uh, Quran, that everything comes from God and ultimately returns to God. Here's what the Kabbalist scholar Gershom Sholem says about an idea in Jewish Kabbalism of Tikkun, and I'm probably not pronouncing that word right. Does anybody know T-I-K-K-U-N? It's Hebrew, but yes. Since uh, Hebrew and Arabic comes from uh, Aramaic, uh-huh. there's Tekun or Tekwin, which is like forming. Ah, well, this is repairing. This is what this or restoring. I mean, that's what the Hebrew word means. So the idea is that in the creation of the cosmos, there was something that was ripped apart, was broken. It's, most of this comes from Luria, Isaac Luria, who was a great uh, medieval Kabbalist. And that our job, both historically and personally, is to restore the cosmos, to restore the divine unity. So here's how Gershom Sholem, who's a Kabbalist scholar, explains it. What is at present reserved to the mystic whose gaze penetrates to the outer shell, to the core of matter, Will Anon be the common property of mankind in the state of redemption? So in other words, we're all going to become mystics, ultimately. That's where history is taking us. And according to Menachem Nahum, who's a great Hasidic master, this actually involves the divinization of matter. This is going to involve the divinization of matter. And here's what he said. This world and the world to come must be joined into a total oneness such that will allow body to be translated into soul, just as happens within a single human person. Then matter will be so purified that the term this world will no longer apply at all. Everything will be one, and it will be called the world to come. So in other words, when we talk about the world to come, we're talking about a spiritual world. When that world comes, it's going to transform this whole world into pure spirit. So that's going to be the end of time. So this is where this idea of divinization of matter is starting to uh, crop up. In modern times, last couple hundred years, in Europe anyway, we can look to a philosopher named Frederick Hegel, who developed a dialectical philosophy of how history develops and leads to a realization of absolute spirit. 
And so history is moving from a thesis to antithesis and comes together in unity, and ultimately it's going to end in this kind of realization of spirit. Then more recently, in the last century, Tilliard de Chardin, who was a French priest, and paleontologist and so forth, worked up this theory of the development of the news sphere. Uh, he was trying to really reconcile evolution and Christianity, basically. And the idea was part of it. It's more complicated than this. But part of it was that before life began, the earth was just dead matter. And then life spread around the earth and created the biosphere. That's the sphere of life. But then life produced uh, more consciousness, more mental phenomena. Nous is the Greek word for mind. And so it's generating this nous sphere, this mental sphere on top of the biological sphere, on top of the inanimate matter sphere. And then we're going to reach an omega point and, you know, this is going to be the coming of Christ or whatever. And then Aurobindo, who is this Hindu philosopher, developed this theory of the overmind and the supermind. And again, trying to sort of reconcile Hindu spirituality with evolution. That there are two things happening. Uh, consciousness is evolving to meet this supermind, the pure Brahman consciousness. But as that's happening, the supermind is being brought down and is transforming this cosmos and transmuting it into a spiritual cosmos. So this is sort of a double movement in history. So these are more modern sorts of attempts to reconcile, particularly in the case of Chardin and Aurobindo, older traditions with modern ideas of evolution and stuff like that. Now, oh, and then one other thing I want to say is most recently that I know of, there's a book I believe we have in the library called Awakening West by two young Americans. And it's interviews with uh, enlightened teachers that are around today. And the book is sort of based on this premise that there's this planetary awakening going on right now. And I know some people who have this idea. Uh, I must say, if it's true, their timetable seems to be uh, very quick. I mean, they think it's going to happen in the next 20 years and whatnot. That's not the way I... I'm in the long range an optimist, but I must say in the short range, maybe something other than awakening or something opposite of awakening is going on in the short run. But in any case, these are these perennial ideas that crop up that somehow history itself is spiritual and has a spiritual end or a spiritual goal or whatever. In my personal view, I think it's very dangerous to confuse myths. I'm using myth here not in any derogatory sense, but just as a different kind of narrative than modern historical narrative, to use myths that at one time were used to express the significance of human life. Certainly the significance of human life, from my point of view and any Gnostic's point of view, is realization and the possibilities of that realization to confuse that with modern historical analysis which I think many of these people do. Because ultimately, if we are going to have a serious new cosmological paradigm, it's got to be one that's credible to a large number of people, particularly a large number of intellectuals. Uh, and I say that because we can have movements, and we will have evangelical kinds of movements and so forth, but paradigms have to be rational. A cosmological paradigm has to explain as much phenomena as possible in as consistent and a logical way as possible. So it has to appeal at perhaps different levels of understanding, both to the common masses, but also to people in academia and so forth. It has to really make sense and has to be subject to that kind of scrutiny. So I think these sorts of projects are naive in many ways. Teilhard de Chardin is a very good example. In spite of the fact he was quite a brilliant man, and his, his ideas are very creative. And uh, Sean said he's gotten very interested in him. I was interested in him at one point. Uh, and it's very seductive, you know. We are thirsty for some meaning to our lives, not only just our personal lives, but our communal life. What is this all about? Where are we going? And so we are drawn to these sorts of ideas. But let us be careful. Let us be careful. And I think we have one very instructive example of the horrors that this kind of thing can produce when it goes wrong. And I'm talking about communism. And oddly enough, communism really is based on a Hegelian view of history. As Karl Marx said, he took uh, Hegel and he turned him on his head. And instead of being a spiritual-based philosophy, he took the same dialectical structure, but he placed it on a material space. 
And the idea was that history had a direction. And there was this class warfare going on. And eventually the working class, the proletariat, would triumph and would establish first the world socialist society and ultimately a communist society. The state would wither away and we wouldn't need any police or laws or anything anymore. Extremely utopian idea, but extremely seductive. And in the space of, oh, a little bit more than a century, from the middle of the 19th century through the middle of the 20th century, this was one of the most startling revolutionary ideas that human beings have ever had. It was like a religion. And by the way, I don't want to go into this now. There are a lot of parallels. It's amazing. Marx being the prophet and victory of the proletariat being the Christ coming at the end of time. And this is, is quite astonishing even down to criticism and self-criticism, the kind of confessional forms that they developed. I used to be a communist, so I know this well. <laughs> and I know how seductive it is. You suddenly have a way to think about the world, a way that makes sense. It gives you something to do with your life. Your life now is going to be part of this larger purpose. Do you know what I mean? And it's very hard to give that up. I saw a new show, I don't know, a couple of years ago. This woman I knew very well in San Francisco, and she ran this little Marxist bookstore. She's still dreaming about the revolution, you know? I mean, it's really hard to let go once you've given your life to something like that. And that's what happens. And what happened with all this? Of course, it didn't end up with the workers' utopia. It ended up with a string of nightmares and ultimate failure. So we have to be very, very careful about committing ourselves to these kinds of schemes. We have to be very careful. So I certainly think that Gnosis has tremendous significance for humanity uh, from what I outlined in the beginning, both in the past and I think it will be in the, in the future. But I don't think we should start taking literally or confusing myths from the Kabbalists or the Christians or whatever with modern historical evidence and ideas of evolution and stuff like that. But is that the end of it? No. There's another flip side to this, and a flip side in which suddenly all the myths make sense in their own terms, not as historical accounts of what's going to happen, but they are expressing something that is hard to express in other language. So this is then looking at this question from the Gnostic's perspective. And to understand the Gnostic's perspective, the first thing we have to do is invert the question. Instead of asking, what is the significance of Gnosis for the world? We have to ask the question, what is the significance of the world for Gnosis? Now we can start to give a different kind of answer. So, here's what Rumi says, just to get us going. Rumi is a great uh, Sufi, a mystic of Islam. Though it seems the branch is the origin of the fruit, in truth the branch only exists for the fruit, if there were no hope, no desire for this fruit, why should the gardener have planted the tree? So the tree was born of the fruit, even though it seems the other way around. Is everybody following that? There's no point in planting a tree unless you ultimately want the fruit. Well, from a Gnostic's point of view, this is a poetic, but not a bad way of expressing what the world's about. The world is the means by which consciousness, Brahman, Tao, God, Buddha, nature, whatever term you want to use, expresses itself. That formless consciousness finds and expresses all its infinite possibilities of form. That is what the world is. That is its purpose. It's not the other way around. Here's the Christian mystic, John Scotus Erigina, 9th century. The reason why all things were created from nothing was that the might and magnitude of the divine goodness might be revealed and glorified through his works. This creation is just revealing the glory of God. That's what it's doing. Here's uh, the Hasidic master again, uh, Menachem Nahum. He created the lower world that his blessed divine self might be revealed. Again, this world is revealing that God that is not a thing, that is formless, that you can't see, taste, touch, whatever. And then the Hindu, Ananda Mayama, she was a great mystic of the last century. He alone is... Therefore, he himself speaks to himself 
for the sake of his own revelation. This whole world is God's speech, very Christian-like. It's God's speech, God speaking to God. This is it. You know, Meister Eckhart uh, has a wonderful line. He says, a stone, I don't have a stone, but I have this jar, it's the same thing, speaks as much of God as my mouth does. And what he meant was, and this we have to start learning to think this way if we want to understand the mystics, this is, what you are looking at is a word of God. It's not like there's some secret word, you know, if I open this up and listen real close, <laughs> I, I'd hear God whisper. This is it. This is the speech of God. All of this are forms of the divine in that sense. So, uh, then of course, there's more to this because it's not just one great glorious expression. It's more complicated, as we all know all too well. Somewhere along the line, and this is one of these things that's, again, impossible to adequately really explain, but you could say consciousness or you... If you really had to, you could say a part of consciousness falls into ignorance, falls under the spell of delusion. And in that delusion, loses sight of itself, loses sight of what this world truly is, loses sight of the, quote, spiritual nature of the world. And the world now is experienced apart from that consciousness. That conscious all now seems to be shrunk down up here in this head, looking out through these eyes at this great alien world of matter. And the whole world sort of solidifies into this nightmare land where all these beings are born and suffer and die. It's locked into time. But you see, in a certain sense, this is part of the significance of the world as well. Because this nightmare world, this world of samsara, this veil of tears, as the Christians would say, is the very theater in which consciousness then can awaken to its true nature through gnosis. So the world is serving gnosis. Particularly, it is serving this awakening. This world, now I'm talking about not the divine world or the world of divine expression, but even the world as it's experienced under delusion, has an absolutely vital, irreplaceable role to play. This is actually the ultimate, we could say, the crowning purpose, because when consciousness manifests the world of form, consciousness knows itself in form. It actually literally informs itself. But when it gets lost in form and then has to awaken to its formless nature, now it knows itself completely, both in form and beyond form. The whole enchilada, the perfection of it all. Then as Patanjali says, Patanjali's great ancient Hindu master of yoga, when consciousness realizes itself and is established in gnosis, then for consciousness itself, Nature has attained its purpose and comes to an end. Once consciousness recognizes, recognizes itself, it no longer needs this world, this world of delusion. I'm not talking about this world in terms of manifestation, but this world as it's experienced as a place of suffering. It ends, it falls away, it disappears. It's not just Patanjali's. Listen to Rumi again. The pillar of this world, O beloved, is heedlessness. That's another term for ignorance. That's what upholds this world that you experience now. Wakefulness is this world's bane, this world's enemy. Wakefulness and this world cannot exist together. Wakefulness comes from that world. When it prevails, this world is laid flat. Here's a personal description of this. Here's Shankara, a great Hindu mystic. Where is this universe? Who took it away? Has it merged into something else? A while ago I beheld it. Now it exists no longer. This is wonderful indeed. So, from the perspective of Gnosis, this world doesn't truly exist to begin with, and it's not going anywhere. It's going to serve its purpose, and that is to awaken you, and then it's going to vanish. 
There won't be any history. And there is no history, in fact. So you see, all these attempts to understand it from that historical point of view don't make sense from this perspective at all. It's not evolving towards anything, this world. Here's the Buddhist Lakmatara Sutra expressing this paradox. Someday, each and every one will be influenced by the wisdom and love of the Buddhas of transformation to lay up a stock of merit and ascend the stages of the spiritual path. So in other words, in the Buddhist view, this goes back to the Mahayana view, there is a sort of evolution. Eventually, all beings are going to wake up. It may take you eons and rebirths and lifetimes and lifetimes, but eventually all beings are going to wake up and go to nirvana and samsara will be empty. But, you see, here's the shift in perspective coming. But if they only realized it, they are already in the Buddha's nirvana. For in noble wisdom, all things are in nirvana from the very beginning. We haven't come anywhere. We are not going anywhere. There is no history. There is no evolution. Here's what Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, says. Know that the paradise, which is predestined for those who will come to it in the next life, is before your eyes already. This very day, you are there now, but you do not know it. We're not even evolving towards paradise at the end of our lives. Like, you know, you're going to be a good little boy or girl and you're going to die and then you're going to finally get to paradise. Oh, thank God I made it. (laughs) Jesus says the same thing in the Gospel of Thomas. The kingdom of God will not come by expectation. They will not say, see here or see there. But this kingdom of the Father is spread upon the earth and men do not see it. If you are a Christian waiting for the kingdom to come, guess what? It's here already. That was Jesus' message. The kingdom of God is at hand, you know? I mean, that's like, how can you be more concrete about that? It's right there, just behind that veil. See, okay. No, we'll wipe there. This world that we experience now is really like a dream. And the dream has these two aspects, depending on how you are experiencing it. If you are in the dream and you think it's real, and it happens to be a disturbing dream, some sort of nightmare, somebody's running after you, you're going to have a lot of suffering. If you become lucid in the dream, you might enjoy it. You will know you're not actually going to get hurt, and then there'll be a big chase, and it'll be like in a movie. Do you know what I mean? You could actually be in your own movie and being chased by a villain. Or by better yet, a dinosaur. That's the one I love. You know, everybody flocks to go to see Jurassic Park and the son of Jurassic Park and the daughter of Jurassic Park and all that so that they can have that experience. But in your own dream, you could actually be one of those kids being chased by the dinosaur. So the very same dream could be a nightmare or it could be a source of delight, just depending on whether you are lucid or not in it. And this is, again, a way of expressing this double perspective. There's actually just one perspective but we have to talk about it in a complementary way, just like we have to talk about things in quantum mechanics in a complementary way to make sense of them. And I want to end with this idea that uh, this world is a dream. And I'm going to tell you a dream that I had, and we'll see what happens. This is an experiment. <laughs> the reason I had this jacket is because in the dream, I had a jacket like this, but I'll get to that. In the dream, I'm driving along in a car with a young man. And actually, it wasn't you, but about Sean's age. And we're driving along, and this wasn't specific to this Oregon, but it seemed to be that road going out to the coast, and it goes through that long tunnel. Except this was a four-lane highway, and it was a long tunnel, more like you would drive through going into New York, like the Holland Tunnel or something. And as we're going through, there are these car wrecks along the way. A few here, there, you know, there's still smoke coming up and people injured and lying around and whatnot. And it gets worse and worse. And finally, there's this traffic jam. And we stop and we get out and we're going to try to help people. But there are lots of ambulances and caregivers and people know what they're doing about. And everything's under control. But we have to start walking on foot. And, you know, we keep looking for something to do to help. There really isn't anything to do. And it's getting worse and worse, though. You know, the bodies are piling up and the wounds are more ghastly and whatnot. And finally, we come out the other side of the tunnel and there's this huge meadow. And if you've ever seen the movie uh, Gone with the Wind, there's this very famous shot 
of uh, Scarlett O'Hara. She's running around to fetch the doctor because her friend's having a baby. And it's this great yard by a, a railroad. And there are these wounded soldiers there. And they're close up on her. And as they pull back and pull back and pull back, and you see the whole yard is just full of wounded soldiers. Well, this is a scene like that. This meadow is just full of these wounded, suffering people. And the young man was really extremely upset. I mean, this was a real nightmare. And my task in this dream was see, to help him wake up. So I had this jacket, and it wasn't this exact jacket. Actually, it was a jacket very much like this I got when I worked at the paint factory. But it was the same kind of uh, artificial silk material, like a rayon or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? So I took the jacket, I was holding the jacket, and I, I was trying to explain to him. I said, this is a dream, you see. This is all a dream. Don't be so upset. It's okay. There is really, truly speaking, no one suffering. I said, here, feel this jacket. So I, I want you to do this now. Okay. I feel the jacket. Now you feel how real that feels? It's so tactile. You know, this is why the jacket's important. But this is a dream. Now, in the dream, I knew it was a dream, you see. I said, well, did you wake up? Do you get it? He said, no. <laughs> I said, now what do we do? I said, well, we'll keep going until you wake up. <laughs> well, the point of the dream was, this is a dream too. It's, there's no difference here, even though it has this kind of feel to it. When I say this is a dream, when mystics say this is a dream, they don't mean that you're missing something in terms of its vividness, its clarity, its beauty, its spectacular drama. It's not there's some hazy negative kind of thing, and you know what I mean? No, it is every bit as beautiful and more so, more so than you're experiencing now. But it still has the quality of being a dream. It is a dream, if you like, in the mind of God. This is a dream of consciousness. And that is who you are. You're the one having this dream. And you're appearing in the dream as yourself, and you're appearing as all these people. Just as in my dream, that person was walking around with a young man. That was a creation. And the young man was a creation. And all the people who were dead were creation. Of what? Of this one consciousness. You get it? Does anybody get it? <laughs> <laughs> there. <laughs> I don't know if I'd answered your question. No. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions? Yes. If you one discovers gnosis or can find enlightenment or somehow be lucky enough to achieve it, um, would that help with pain, disease, physical, forget the mentals, uh, physical pain, disease, and can that be handled by someone who's enlightened as far as uh, things we try to avoid very much is why the, the pharma, pharmaceutical industries are so huge and large. Right. And that's a big part of our life, in America anyway. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, first of all, they're not enlightened. You can't avoid it. I mean, everybody is going to have some pain, physical pain in their life. Let me put it this way. It's not about doing away with physical pain, but it's about realizing physical pain is part of this divine play, if you like, and not creating that spiritual suffering. So it's not about eliminating physical pain. And, you know, I've said this many times, you wouldn't want to eliminate physical pain. Because there are people who don't experience physical pain. I mean, something's biologically wrong with them, and it's hell. Because they don't know when they're being injured. You know what I mean? I read an article about this, this one person. The only way they knew they were being burned, if they put their hand on a hot stove, is to smell their flesh burning. Pain is your great ally, you see? So this is the point. It's not about... Gnosis serving our life in this world. Gnosis does not serve our life in this world. This world serves Gnosis because this world is our opportunity to become enlightened. As uh, Nandamoyamai says, uh, you fall on the ground, you use the ground to push yourself up. We fall into delusion, we use delusion to awaken ourselves. But then it's finished, it has no more purpose. If you're going to understand the mystics, you don't have to believe the mystics. That's something else entirely. You may not. It's, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't. It's so radical. But if you're going to understand them, you really have to get out of the box. Stop thinking in the old box that is confined by history, time, space, limited beings. That is the delusion. So you've got to flip that around some way. Yes? Does it 
seem necessary that hypnosis be an adult activity, or could an awakened person raise the child from the time of conception through birth, and then the child would be awake for its life? Ah, first of all, certainly a Gnostic could raise a child. I mean, there's nothing against that whatsoever. But all traditions have some sense that our problem of delusion is not a personal problem. It began before we came on the scene. It's a cosmic problem. It's not a personal problem. That's why in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna, all human beings are born into delusion based on their past karma and things like that. You are born deluded. In the West, in the Christian tradition particularly, uh, you have this sense of being born with original sin, which is a way of saying this, that the original error is not something that's sociological that your parents can correct. you know what I mean? Yeah. You come in with it. And then in the Islamic and Jewish traditions, they don't have like original sin that way, but this right. tendency towards forgetfulness, heedlessness, uh, do you know what I mean? We, yeah. we have that yeah. very strongly. So I think it's a big mistake to think that if you raise the child perfectly, they would never get deluded. They are deluded when they come on the scene. And what you can do is you can expose them to the possibility of waking up. You can teach them at an early age the values of selflessness that lead towards that, compassion, you know, this and that. You can teach them by example is the best way But there's another thing about children or any other human being, you know, because we are each equally divine, whether we are awake or not, we have to allow each other the space to fail this time around. Do you see what I mean? So we can do everything that we can for somebody, but there is a limit. It's, It's a limit that is built into the nature of things beyond which we start trying to control them and we actually end up dehumanizing and de-divinizing them, if that's the word. Do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. So we have to have that humility and that appreciation of the grandeur of all this, that these are all characters, they have their parts to play too. We interact, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I got it. (laughs) But if you are really bound and determined or destined or however you want to think about it to become a murderer, well, that's what it's going to be. And we wouldn't want to be without murderers in the world. I mean, just think of all the great literature, plays, dramas, movies, that depend on a murder. I mean, they'd all be gone. Because nobody would have that experience, nobody would be writing about it. What would, what would our great dramas be about? So no disease, well, that, that wipes out half the television. You know. <laughs> Jennifer, she was very sick the other day with her hay fever and all that when she gets really sick what she does she has a little lunch and she turns on a soap opera so she's watching the soap opera so I'm passing through back and forth and all these people are in bed I mean it's like every day I, I, I remarked that at one point I said don't these characters ever get out of bed she said this is general hospital dummy <laughs> yes Sherry Wait, you mentioned dreaming and I've been struck in the last couple of weeks by the similarity between how real dreams seem. You know, when you wake up, you've had one. The whole thing is there with all its drama, all its color. I mean, last night, the leather, uh, red leather on this chair was just, I mean, it was so real. I'm wondering if dreaming has been instrumental in the awakenment of you know figures in history if that's a theme that runs through well it's not the dreaming part of it so much but between dreams dreamless sleep is a prime opportunity to wake up because dreamless sleep there is nothing there but pure consciousness so you can't be distracted or fooled by anything do you see what i mean see if you wanted to know what space is and by the way it's an interesting thing isn't it i mean what can you say about space you can't describe its color or form or taste or whatever. But if I really wanted to give you a sense of space, I could talk about it for days, you wouldn't get it. And then I'd start saying, okay, let's everybody clear out of the room. And then let's take all the stuff out of the room. And the more stuff I subtracted, the more you might be able to get a sense of what I'm talking about. You see what I mean? Well, in dreamless sleep, that's the proof of God. We've abstracted everything out of it and there's nothing left but pure consciousness. To be lucid, that's the trick, to be lucid in that state is a prime opportunity for waking up. So in every tradition, 
you'll find teachings about pay attention as you fall asleep, you know. But in the meantime, particularly in the Tibetan tradition, one of their strong practices is to do just what you're doing, to become very mindful of your dreams, to pay very close attention to them and how real they seem, then to turn around and look at this world and try to maintain the continuity of awareness when you go to sleep, as you dream, as you wake up. And more and more, you don't have the experience of, oh, I went to bed, oh, I I went unconscious, oh, I'm dreaming, oh, I woke up. You have (laughs) these worlds coming and going, you know, being projected and then fading away and another world being projected and fading back, you know. And it can really change your experience of the world. Then you start to get a taste of the emptiness of the world that it really isn't that substantial. And then with the with that comes a natural letting go of uh, trying to grasp everything, a relaxation with it all, or just an appreciation to let it unfold. There's nothing there to get a hold of. You have to become happy, you know? So it can be a very powerful practice. But the most powerful place is not in the dreams themselves, but boy, if you're ever lucid in a dream, do all that stuff, make everything as real as possible. But then if you have the presence of mind, dissolve the dream away into that space so you'll be lucid just dissolve the dream and there is dreamless sleep pure consciousness without an object and without a subject (sighs) yes um i was intrigued when i read about arobindo's life a little while ago that the foundation of everything he wrote in all his philosophy was gnosis right and so it's kind of interesting to me that somebody could have that realization fully, but still produce all this philosophy. Oh, yeah, but see, this is the point. There's nothing wrong with philosophy yeah. as long as we understand what it is. Uh-huh. There's nothing wrong with movies as long as we understand what they are. Do you yeah. see what I mean? That's not the problem. And, you know, philosophy can be beautiful. My teacher, Dr. Wolf, produced philosophy. That was his way of expressing. It's no different fundamentally than Rumi, who danced or produced poetry, you see what I mean? Or um, Hazrat Inyat Khan, who produced music. That's the point. Philosophy is like music. You see, we look to philosophy for answers. We should look to philosophy for beauty, just the way we do to music. We don't look to music for answers in that sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But we wouldn't want to be without music. My gosh. So we wouldn't want to be without philosophy either. Let's not be fooled. Look, if this is truly paradise, if this is truly the kingdom of God here, see, there's nothing wrong with anything going on. Otherwise, it couldn't be the kingdom of God, could it? So there can't be anything wrong with philosophy. That's how we see it. Dr. Wolf, who had a great philosophical mind, put it rather technically, but very precisely. Gnosis, realization, has nothing to do with the change of the contents of consciousness. So if you are sitting there meditating and you are waiting to see something that you are not seeing, you're missing the point. As Seng Seng, a great uh, Chinese Zen master said, it's right before you, nothing in excess, nothing lacking, perfect just as it is. So there doesn't have to be a new content of consciousness. You're not suddenly going to see, I don't know, some... A platonic form behind the appearances. No, it's not that. It's this, but you're seeing it as it truly is. Just like in a dream, if you become lucid in a dream, what's the difference? I mean, you become lucid, you see, oh, this is a dream. But the dream can go on just as it's gone on before. It doesn't have to change. It doesn't have to be a change of content. Don't look for a change of content. I mean, I know you're going to. I'm just trying to... Save you a little time. Remember that when you're looking, looking, getting frustrated and can't find it, maybe that's a nice moment to surrender. Just give it up. Yes, last question. Someone asked about raising a child. Like, if you're awake, can you raise a child just awake, you know? And you were talking about how, you know, there's this um, sort of mythology that we come into the world deluded. Um, But my question is, from the point of view of the mystic, what's the interpretation of the Hindu idea or the Buddhist idea that once you're awake, once you're fully realized, then there's no more birth and death for right. you. That's the end of incarnation. Oh, well, okay. If we look at it within delusion, or trying to communicate to somebody within delusion so it makes sense, then there's a lot of takes on that. For instance, the Mahayana Buddhists say, well, the truly compassionate thing to do is to voluntarily take rebirth so that you can continue to help beings so we can empty samsara. 
So there is more birth and death and rebirth. You know, Tibetan lineages are these Rinpoches who die, reborn, the Dalai Lama. They're, like they're still born into delusion and then they re they're realized again in the next life? Uh, well, the idea is, as I understand it, you really didn't get an authoritative answer. You have to go ask a Tibetan. But the difference is they voluntarily choose to re-enter samsara, whereas deluded people who have never woken up don't. They have no control over it. See what I mean? Now, I don't know what they'd say about what degree you might have to go through you know, a period of illusion or to understand the practice to help somebody wake up or whatever. I, I just don't know what they'd say about it. But here's the point. From the ultimate perspective, there's no one to be born, to die, or to be deluded in the first place. This is the highest truth. No one was born and no one dies. See, in my dream, here I am with this young man and all these dead people. But is anybody really born or dying in that dream? Was I born or did I die? The young man, was he born and he died? These people are dying and they really dying? How do you answer that question? In the context of the dream, yes, they are really dying. The young man is suffering. He's suffering terribly. But he doesn't exist. I mean, this is the paradox. Remember I told you in the very beginning we were going to end up with a paradox. And now we've come there. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should quit while we're ahead. <laughs> You're welcome to hang around, have some tea, check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all.